Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday night, we get some advice on how to beat the summer heat and get a good night's sleep no matter what your setup is at home. We find out why an incoming ban on the import of dogs into Canada from more than 100 countries to try to prevent dog rabies is meeting with anger and disappointment from many in the animal rescue community who say it is a death sentence for animals who could otherwise be given new homes in this country. We look into a report that local hires at the embassy in Kyiv were abandoned by Ottawa as Russia prepared to invade back in February despite pleas from embassy staff and warnings that they could be targeted by Russian soldiers. But first, U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is in Taiwan, the highest-ranking American official to visit there in 25 years. The reaction from China has been swift and angry, calling it a provocative visit and announcing it would conduct live-fire exercises around Taiwan this weekend. So why is Pelosi there? What impact will it have on that delicate U.S.-China relationship? And what could it mean for Canada? start in Taiwan. Back in 2009, I got a first-hand look at the complexities of the Taiwan-China relations. Well, we went to southern Taiwan to cover a visit there by the Dalai Lama. Now, China consider him, the spiritual leader, to be persona non grata, but most Taiwanese are Buddhists, and he was invited to comfort the nation after a typhoon killed nearly 700 people in August 2009. China accuses the spiritual leader of wanting independence for Tibet, and it claims sovereignty over self-ruled Taiwan. So they were far from pleased, saying the visit was bound to have a negative influence on relations between the mainland and Taiwan. And so a speculation that U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi would head a congressional delegation to Taiwan, it came as no surprise that China, certainly a different China now from the one it was back in 2009 under President Xi Jinping, would react with even more anger. Pelosi arrived today, Tuesday, to become the highest-ranking American official in 25 years to visit Taiwan. She arrived aboard a U.S. Air Force passenger jet and was greeted on the tarmac at Taipei's International Airport by Taiwan's foreign minister and other Taiwanese and American officials. Pelosi said on social media prior to the trip that our visit reiterates that America stands with Taiwan a robust, vibrant democracy, and our important partner in the Indo-Pacific. By traveling to Taiwan, she wrote, we honor our commitment to democracy, reaffirming, reaffirming that the freedoms of Taiwan and all democracies must be respected. China, well, to be predicted, the People's Liberation Army announced it would conduct live-fire exercises in regions surrounding Taiwan, while the Ministry of Foreign Affairs accused Pelosi of making a provocative visit and warned you at the U.S. it would be responsible for the consequences. The U.S. must give up any attempt to play the Taiwan card and strictly follow the One China principle and fulfill the three Sino-U.S. joint communiques. If the U.S. insists on following the wrong course of action, then it should be responsible for any serious consequence arising thereof. That was the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson in Beijing. The Kremlin is also strongly warning the U.S. against provoking China, saying it will raise tensions to a new dangerous level. But the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says China's attempt to portray a senior official's visit as hostile is, quote, on them. The United States is not looking for escalation, but of course, we will reserve the right to ensure that we are defending our interests and we will stay vigilant to whatever China chooses to do in the coming hours and days. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan there. So why now? How much does it knock a very delicate power dance between China and the U.S. off its feet? And what impact will it have on Canada's relation with relations with both China and Taiwan? Well, joining me now with more on this is Charles Burton. He's a senior fellow specializing in China and Canada-China relations at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. Thanks so much for your time. Good evening, Ben. 
So what do you make of this visit and the timing? It, it all seems, uh, I mean, both provocative and, uh, and uh, somewhat encouraging at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you know, Ms. Pelosi originally was planning to go to Taiwan in April and then came down with the COVID-19, wasn't able to go. So now she's having a, a tour of East Asia. She's going to Japan after this and uh, South Korea. She's already been in, in uh, Singapore. And so, um, you know, Taiwan is on the agenda. It might have said, made a statement if she hadn't gone to Taiwan. But I think that the visit has been opposed or at least treated with caution by really all the parties involved, the Biden presidency, the Pentagon, uh, as you say, the government of China, and I think the government of Taiwan are worried that uh, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan could um, exacerbate tensions and continue the process that we're seeing in the world today of of a breakdown of the international rules-based order, as it seems that Russia and China and its allies are ranking up against um, Canada and the United States and our like-minded countries with regard to democracy. You know, certainly uh, before Ms. Pelosi went, a lot of people felt that her visit was foolish, um, dangerous, and unnecessary out of fear that the very fact that she would try and, and set down on Taiwan could lead to a response from Chinese People's Liberation Army Air Force uh, aircraft and to incur into Taiwanese territory and that the Taiwanese um, defensive forces would have to rally uh, to, to meet those aircraft. And these kinds of activities are necessarily dangerous. And what would happen if Know, two of those planes crashed into each other on a, while they're playing a game of chicken or something and uh, and fomented a very serious international incident. As it turned yeah. out, um, that didn't happen. And so now she's there reaffirming U.S. support for democratic Taiwan against autocracy, which, you know, as you say, has got to be a good thing. Yeah, I know that uh, President Biden and President Xi had a long phone call last month. I know the White House hasn't exactly been, didn't exactly get out the pom-poms for this visit. Uh, where, where do you think the concern is? I mean, at, at one point, if you're going to defend Taiwan or at least talk up Taiwan's right to its self-determination, at some point you have to let people visit and not, uh, not necessarily back down if uh, the Chinese make the kind of noise they usually make. Sure. I mean, what if uh, we just stood idly by while China went in and... Uh, turned Taiwan into a province of the People's Republic under the autocratic uh, dictatorship of the Chinese Communist Party. You know, what would that say to all the democracies around the world that are allied with us? You know, I think China's looked at, at the half-hearted support for Ukraine by Canada and like-minded allies and the United States, where it looks like the Russians uh, may eventually achieve their military objective to subordinate Ukraine to a kind of Russian uh, empire and and think, well, you know, everybody talks a good talk on Taiwan and our commitment to democracy, but maybe when push comes to shove, um, if China engages in in uh, activity to, to blockade Taiwan or otherwise um, bring Taiwan to its knees so that so that it will um, fall into place and to the return to the embrace of the motherland as 
as the PRC puts it, and and we will just uh, feel, oh, that's regrettable, but accept it because, you know, China's important to us as a trading partner, and Taiwan has a population which is one sixtieth that of the People's Republic of China. But you know, I think people like me um, believe that there's things that are more important than the immediate economic interests of large Canadian corporations, and that's standing up for the integrity of the international rules-based order against uh, a very serious threat by um, China and Russia, mostly led by China's power and influence and money. Yeah, I was I was mentioning earlier that, of course, I'd been there in 2009 when the Dalai Lama visited. Taiwan would always flare up now and then in, during my time in China. But uh, under Xi Jinping, it has taken on a different dimension. And, and, and domestic politics in China right now, or domestic considerations, I should say, in China right now, do play a role here. Uh, there's, they're going through some tough times economically. There's the COVID lockdowns. And uh, Xi is, has placed a lot of uh, stake in, in, in sort of being masters of their own domain in some senses. And Taiwan obviously falls into that. Absolutely. And I mean, there, you know, if one could argue that Ms. Pelosi's motivation has to do with domestic uh, U.S. politics, specifically uh, congressional elections coming up, uh, you know, she also has domestic considerations. As you say, he's in a weakened position because of the declining economy due to the um, massive program of lockdowns to try and control COVID-19 in a country that refuses to import the effective mRNA vaccines that China, for some reason, has not been able to produce itself. And um, you know, his general, the general dissatisfaction of people with Xi's return to sort of Stalinist old norms and greater control and censorship and internet um, blocking and all of these things that the people at the at the uh, ordinary level of citizens are unhappy about. If she, in addition to that, was seen as being weak on Taiwan or allowing the United States to make China lose face. I mean, after all, when Mr. Xi spoke with uh, President Biden by video conference a few days ago, you know, he said that uh, it was unacceptable for there to be official contacts between the U.S. government and and the Taiwan regime, and it was playing with fire, and those who play with fire on Taiwan will self-immolate. Well, I mean, that's pretty lurid democratic <laughs> discourse, even for China. And, um, you know, if, if, if Pelosi goes there and China doesn't do anything which demonstrates to its people that it's defending uh, China's claim over Taiwan, then uh, Xi's position would be seriously um, debased and it could affect the fate of his desire to assume absolute power over China at the next uh, Chinese Communist Party Congress this fall. That's right. He's uh, about to take on a third term, which, of course, uh, in recent times is unprecedented. And yeah, that is some very Kim Jong-un-esque Kim Jong -un -esque, uh, rhetoric from uh, from the Chinese president. I'm speaking with Charles Burton. He's a senior fellow specializing in China and Canada-China relations at the McDonald Laurier Institute. We're talking about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. She's there as we speak. She's the highest ranking U.S. official to visit uh, Taiwan in many, many, many years. Uh, we're just talking about the implications of that. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about what China China's possible reaction could be, because certainly the threats are there. And also, what impact does this have on Canada that often finds itself caught in the middle of U.S.-China relations, specifically when things get a little heated? Uh, we'll be back with that. 
Our guest is Charles Burton. He's a senior fellow specializing in China at the McDonald Laurier Institute. We're talking about Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. She is there as we speak, the highest ranking American official in 25 years to visit uh, Taiwan, uh, the Speaker of the House. Canada has been noticeably quiet on on this visit, haven't they? I mean, not to be unexpected, not unexpected, but still uh, not much coming from uh, from foreign affairs today about this one. No, I mean, it's unfortunate that Canada seems to have basically lost the plot with China. You know, we don't have an ambassador in Beijing. I mean, since Dominic Barton decamped in December 2021 uh, for completely inexplicable reasons, we don't seem to have come up with anybody to replace him. So we're not able to um, engage the Chinese regime at the senior level. It's, you know, you're, you have to have an ambassador there, Charge d'affaires just doesn't cut it in terms of protocol rank. So, you know, if there is a crisis over Taiwan, um, I really don't think that Canada is prepared to come up with an appropriate response just because we just don't seem to be focused enough on the uh, China issue. You know, there has been a promise of a reset in Canada-China relations going back to about 2017, the government has appointed an Indo-Pacific Policy Advisory Council, but that seems to be more about just delaying making a decision to make a policy statement that will uh, satisfy Canadian public opinion that our government is properly aware and properly responding to China's um, overall global agenda, including what they do in Canada, like cyber espionage and menacing uh, persons of Chinese origin in our country, most of them being Canadian citizens, and influence operations to try and, and get people who have influence over the policy process to um, not support any kind of policy measures that China uh, would feel was hostile to their overall interests here. So, you know, it, it's an unfortunate situation that Canada is so far behind our like-minded uh, uh, colleagues like uh, Australia. You know, the U.S. set up a, a security consortium in the uh, Indo-Pacific, and it consists of the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. Uh, you know, last I heard, the U.K. was not an Asia-Pacific country, whereas Canada definitely is. But uh, they didn't care to invite us to participate, I think, because we're just seen as, as absent from this, uh, from the international dialogue on on China's threat to the international rules-based order, and yet here we are with you know with a large Chinese Canadian population, a large Taiwanese population. Certainly, the Taiwanese. I mean, we're an important; they're an important trading partner for us. We they must look to us at times to see what we might say when these sorts of things happen. Well, I think certainly if you look at the government of Taiwan, it's a democratically elected government that reflects the will of the Taiwanese people that has a political agenda very similar to Canada. You know, a stress on the middle class, gender rights, uh, indigenous people. Um, you know, really, the president of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, and uh, our prime minister, Trudeau, and, you know, the other, even uh, members of, of other parties, really share a lot in terms of, of social values and respect for human rights and uh, independent rule of law in pretty sharp contrast to to our engagement with the People's Republic of China, who, which 
just isn't prepared to engage in fair and reciprocal relations with s smaller nations based on the principle of equal sovereignty and respect for the rights of individual citizens. So, you know, there's a lot of reason why we should support Taiwan because Taiwan affirms the values of the international rules-based order and they're a trustworthy partner that that we can deal with in a fair and reciprocal way. So, you know, one would like to see a lot more Taiwan in, in China and a lot less China in Taiwan. I have about a minute left, Charles. If you if you look uh, at what China's response will be, do you think this may blow over or are we in a, in a dangerous time right now? I think that, you know, the general trend is is towards increasing tensions and, you know, possible very serious conflict between China and the West. You know, this exercise you talked about, the live, um, the live fire exercise and other military exercises that China has planned very close particularly the southern Taiwan, uh, after Ms. Pelosi leaves, really could be a precursor to a blockade of Taiwan, which, you know, Taiwan produces 80% of the globe's uh, computer chips and could be a very serious issue if China got uh, managed to, to, to get Taiwan into its orbit and take control of, of Taiwan's uh, imports and exports. And it certainly sounds like Canada, of all countries, is not quite ready for those for the for that eventuality if it should happen. Charles Burton, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's good to speak with you, Ben. I may be guilty of uh, doing this story a little late because I've been thinking about heat a lot over the last little while. I was in Washington; it was very warm. Uh, the hotel had good air conditioning, but then I went to visit my parents, and it was very warm in Montreal and Ottawa. And air conditioning there wasn't uh, wasn't as great. And I, I hate to complain because there was some air conditioning, um, but just trying to sleep in the summer can be a real challenge. And especially when you get these heat waves, where the temperature rises a lot, it doesn't cool down as much at night, and you struggle to try and feel comfortable. Um, so how do you sleep when it's warm out? Because I know we'll probably have another bout of heat uh, this summer, perhaps not as hot as it was over the last little while here in British Columbia, but in other parts of the country. Um, so basically, we cool off while we sleep. Um, if it's warm... It's harder to shed that heat, right? So that's why it's tougher. But we do tend to wake up more. We do tend to have more restful, restless sleeps. And I was just wondering, well, how can you defeat that? Or how can you at least set yourself up for a good night's sleep, even though it's warm out, no matter what your situation is like at home? So I thought I'd ask Dr. Mohammed Rishi. He specializes in pulmonary medicine, critical care medicine, and sleep disorders for Indiana University physicians in Indiana, in Indianapolis. And he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Rishi. Well, thank you for having me. So I, I guess it's, I mean, anecdotally, one would think summer is just a tough time for a lot of people to sleep. What is it about, especially heat, that has such an impact on our ability to put our head down? Sure. So so naturally, um, uh, it's natural to uh, have a drop in your body temperature as you fall asleep by one to two degrees is what most authors have uh, suggested. And so... Um, we do that by losing heat from our body into the environment. Uh, and as you can imagine, it's harder to do when the room temperature or the place where you're sleeping has a higher temperature uh, than what would be the normal one. And so it's harder for our body to cool down uh, as we're trying to fall asleep. Hence, it's harder for us to fall asleep. 
uh, when we try to do that uh, on, on those long summer nights. What are some of the, I mean, physiologically, I think you've explained it already, but physiologically, that's what's happening. We're trying to shed heat, but you can't because the room temperature could be higher than that, right? Or around that. Yeah. So it's, it can be, you know, our, our normal body temperature is about 37 degrees. And, uh, you know, if the room temperature is 37 degrees, you know, it's, it's hard for your body to shed energy into, into the room. What, um, what are some of the ways to combat it? I mean, what can you do? I mean, clearly during the heat wave, people find themselves in different situations, right? Some people have central air conditioning, some people don't, some people have fans, some people have nothing at all. What are some of the ways you can combat it? Yeah, sure. So um, most people uh, don't realize it, but the, the, the place that they're living usually does not have temperature uh, throughout, throughout uh, uh, their residence. So, you know, for example, if you have a basement, tends to be cooler even, even during uh, summer months. Um, and so in the part of the house that's uh, towards the east tends to be a warmer than part of the house that's towards the west. Uh, and so, uh, and then there are things that you can do to <clears throat> try and decrease the temperature uh, in the rooms that, uh, that have large windows, for example, having thick blinds, for example, especially during early morning and, and, and during the noontime, uh, having, having those windows covered will, will considerably reduce the temperature, um, which would make it easier for you to then sleep at night uh, when you try and sleep in those rooms. Uh, so choosing a place that's cooler uh, would certainly be a good first step. Uh, there are other things that you can do as well. Um, so uh, you can uh, uh, take a, a, a cool uh, a bath before going to bed. That will obviously help your body shed some of that heat that, uh, that it needs to to try and induce sleep. Um, and also uh, having a fan, you know, so even for those people who don't have uh, air conditioning, uh, for most places nowadays, it's possible to have a fan uh, and having a fan, uh, you know, with good air circulation in the room will usually reduce the temperature of the room. And so all of those things uh, will hopefully help reduce the temperature. Um, it's very important to stay hydrated uh, because one of the things that happens is that we sweat when, when there is more heat. And that's, again, body's way of, um, uh, to, uh, of reducing temperature. Uh, and so, uh, uh, so, but to sweat effectively, you need to be hydrated. And so that's why it's important to stay hydrated, you know, not only during the day, but you know, throughout, throughout the 24 hours and during the time that you're sleeping. Is that something as simple as drinking water before you go to bed? But it's clearly something that we try not always to do because it also wakes you up, right? Yeah, no, uh, I think it's not necessarily when you go to bed, uh, kind of making a point of staying hydrated throughout the, the 24 hours. Uh, if you're sweating more, you should kind of uh, know that you need to drink more water than you would, for example, uh, in the winter months. One of the big things that, that people always run into, of course, is leaving windows open. It's noisy, right? You, you, you're introducing new sounds into your sleep environment. Uh, when it comes to opening the window versus keeping the window closed on, on, a, on a hot night, what, what do you recommend for a good sleep? Yeah, so I think it really depends on what kind of temperature you're having on the outside. So, so I'm in Indianapolis, and here the nights have been fairly warm and humid, even on the outside, more so sometimes than what it is in, uh, on the inside. And on, in those situations, I would not recommend opening the window. Uh, uh, but you know, if it's significantly cooler uh, outside than, than, than your uh, residence, then I think opening the window can be helpful. I think more important in my mind 
is having good air circulation. Uh, so if, as long as you have good air circulation, I think you should be able to drop the temperature of the room, especially with, with, with a fan in the room. How much does it change during these heat waves? Because clearly what we've been seeing all, all across North America, I think you've had the same in, in Indiana, is we've had these sort of unseasonably high summer temperatures. Uh, is there any way earlier than you mentioned some of them, but is there any way to prep for a, for a heat wave knowing that it's going to be remarkably hot compared to usual? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, as I said uh, earlier, uh, you know, kind of um, finding a place in the house, for example, which would be cooler. Uh, um, I remember, you know, be, being young, uh, growing up in Pakistan, where it tends to be significantly harder than, for example, here in uh, in America, where I am, or in Canada, where you are. Um, and, and, you know, uh, we would all, the whole family would sleep in the basement. Um, so, kind of, and, you know, that was, that used to be the default plan uh, so that in the summer the family would sleep in the basement, and so uh, and so so having that uh, sort of a plan uh, beforehand, um, and, you know, and then kind of investing in a in a good fan, uh, you know, again beforehand, I think uh, would be, would be helpful. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, you know we would we would do sometimes, uh, you know, which often doesn't happen here because kind of this type of summer heat is not that common. Um, is to have different type of bed sheets um, in in the summer. So we'd have really thin cotton sheets, um, and so so you know changing the bed sheets, not having thick bed covers uh, would also help. I think one additional thing I would mention here is that uh, if you have little kiddos, uh, making sure, sure that you're not swaddling them, for example, making sure uh, that uh, their sleeping condition also uh, reflects the temperature uh, that that we are in, I think uh, is important because uh, infants especially have a harder time regulating their body temperature, not only when it's cold, but on the flip side, when it's warm as well. Um, so making sure that they, they, they're also in a, in, a, in a reasonable situation when it comes to uh, how, much, how much clothing is on them and what kind of sleeping situation they are in. Yeah, how do you how do you adapt for the, for kids? For instance, I mean, it's you mentioned, but just for kids in general, how do you adapt to this heat uh, when you're trying to get them to? What does it change for them? You mentioned it's harder to regulate, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're probably gonna be less uh, likely to pay attention to the temperature. So I think again, in, uh, especially in the long afternoons, uh, making sure that they're not spending too much uh, time out in the sun. Um, and then making sure that they stay hydrated. And again, I think uh, at nighttime, making sure uh, that they, their sleeping situation is such that they also have good ventilation in their room, that they're not putting thick covers on. Maybe they, they can take a, that cool bath before going to bed that will help them shed some of that temperature uh, you know, and heat from their body. Um, you know, Some people would suggest putting your feet uh, in cool water for 10 minutes before going to bed because that's, you know, our feet, uh, you know, uh, are wonderful uh, conductors uh, of so you, you can lose quite a bit of heat from your feet um, if it's put in uh, uh, cool water. And so, so some of those tricks uh, you, you can employ uh, to try and see if, uh, if that helps. What about the flip side of the situation? Because I know a lot of people have very, you know, very effective air conditioning these days, but it feels like you can actually crank it up too high at night. So you actually wake up cold. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, ideally, you know, uh, in the literature, uh, the, the room temperature that's recommended uh, good for sleeping uh, is in, in the mid to high 60s. 
Uh, certainly, I think um, if the room temperature falls significantly lower than that, uh, then then yeah, I mean, you can lose to, and there is such a thing as losing too much heat. But I think uh, we're usually not um, uh, at risk of uh, doing that because, you know, often people here are still using their, their uh, winter uh, blankets uh, in the summer. Right. So, so you can usually stay warm enough. Uh, but yeah, th that is certainly, a, a, you know, something that uh, should be um, uh, a concern. I, I would tell you, though, that in our uh, in our house, um, you know, our, our air conditioning is not that good. So <laughs> with our heating, uh, our, our, with our our temperatures right now, uh, our heat, our air conditioning is really struggling. It's struggling. So I got to keep it just cool. Uh, a last question for you, Dr. Rishi, if you do wake up, which happens, uh, especially because it's been lighter, it's getting, you know, it's obviously getting less light these days in the morning, but with yeah. the heat and the light, uh, if you do wake up, what should you do? If you do, if you feel like you need more sleep, but you're awake, what should you do? You know, I think I, um, traditionally don't recommend, uh, naps in the afternoon, uh, but you know that's one of the things then that humans have done for millennia is to take a little siesta or or nap in the afternoon. So if you are lucky enough uh, that you you can do that, I think it's okay to nap for a for a short period of time. If you are going to nap, uh, we would recommend not more than twenty minutes. So it should not be a nap that's going to be uh, very long, uh, like a couple of hours. That's certainly not recommended. But a short nap in the afternoon is probably okay. Uh, the other thing to kind of remember is not to take it close to bedtime. Um, so, so early in the afternoon, uh, you know, you, you could potentially take a small, bed, a short cat nap, and that would help. Any, any uh, last question? Any, any suggestions for those who wake up sort of, you know, four o'clock in the morning, hot, uh, overheating? Um, you know, know they need some more sleep. What can you do to cool yourself down quickly? You mentioned, I guess, some of the same stuff you do before you went to bed, right? Is it good to yeah, get up I mean, and walk around or? You can, you can take a, a, a quick shower, uh, see if that helps. Uh, you know, the other thing that people have done in the past, believe it or not, is, you know, for example, putting some peas in the, in the, um, 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 in the freezer? In the, in the freezer and then right. putting those in your, uh, in your pillow. Um, oh, wow, okay you know, or putting some uh, some ice uh, in front of the fan and let the fan blow on top of the ice and then get the air to you. Uh, some of those things will drop the temperature of the air. Um, and so, um, so, so you could try some of those, uh, some of those things. But again, I think one thing I would say is that, you know, um, uh, it's it's important to remember in the end that, uh, that, you know, having not good night's sleep uh, for, for a couple of nights uh, it's probably not going to affect your functioning, uh, you know, during, during the daytime. And so, uh, so obviously take the measures to stay cool, uh, stay hydrated, and then let go. Uh, you know, uh, hopefully the temperature will eventually come down uh, and uh, hopefully we'll all be okay. Dr. Rishi, thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thank, thanks a lot for having me. <laughs> Here's a story you may have seen something of since it was announced back in late June. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency is implementing a ban in late September. On September 28th, it goes into effect. But it happens to be World Rabies Day, and this is what it's intended to combat. Uh, we will be banning the imports of dogs from more than 100 countries listed as, quote, at high risk for dog rabies. We'll be banning the import of dogs from those countries into this country. 
but the animal rescue community here in Canada is uh, is wondering why it's such a draconian measure. Uh, it really is 113 countries, countries you may be familiar with even for dog rescue stories, such recent ones, Afghanistan, Ukraine, and so on. Um, it prohibits the entry of commercial dogs from countries, again, considered at high risk for dog rabies. But the definition of commercial is quite broad. It includes uh, rescues, it includes adoptions, and so on. Uh, so here, there is a lot of folk, there are a lot of folks who are wondering why this uh, this whole rule has been put into place, uh, why it's so broad, why it had to be put in on the 28th, why there was no consultation with the animal rescue community here. Uh, and if it's to prevent rabies, which of course is a concern to all, uh, is there not some room for flexibility here? Because the warning, of course, is that if we put in these rules and ban all imports of dogs from these 113 countries total, uh, what in fact happens is that an entire structure built up to bring uh, adopted, to have dogs adopted and brought to this country suddenly falls apart, or at least falls apart for the most part. Well, joining me now is lawyer Camille Lapchuk. Uh, she is the executive director of Animal Justice. Thank you so much for your time. Glad to be here, Ben. So uh, this caught everyone off guard to a certain extent. Uh, how is it? I guess it's it's been talked about, but all of a sudden we have this sort of uh, this date, uh, this September 28th date to, to work towards. Was it a complete surprise to those who, who work closely with this stuff? Yeah, Ben, unfortunately, it was a complete surprise. I, I've spoken with so many rescues who were just caught completely off guard by this really unfortunate news that their operations would be in jeopardy starting September 28th. Uh, what's really surprising about this move by the CFIA is that it seems to have been done without any consultation uh, with those who were affected by it. So not a single rescue group that I've spoken to anywhere in this country or internationally had a heads up that this was coming and they weren't allowed to, you know, make any representations to address what concerns the CFIA might legitimately have about rabies and figure out a way to move forward that doesn't involve such a blanket discriminatory ban. There's there's so many countries targeted there. A lot of people, I think, who are familiar with rescue will will notice some of the countries are, are places where we have a lot of where we see a lot of that going on. What what, what kind of impact will it have broadly? Well, honestly, it really breaks my heart because these are, as you know, there are some of the countries where the need for dog rescue is absolutely the highest. Uh, they tend to be less developed countries. Uh, some of these countries still have an active dog meat trade like China and the Philippines. Um, some of these countries are in the middle of conflict like Ukraine and Afghanistan. And, you know, in all of these countries, there's situations where dogs are roaming the streets, not knowing where their next meal is coming from. They're dodging traffic to survive, or maybe they're scooped up and put into, uh, you know, a high kill shelter where they're, where they're shot. Um, you know, this literally just happened last week in Iran. There were news stories that came out about the government rounding up over a thousand dogs and just killing them. Um, you know, so there, there are countries where the need for rescue is really, really high and countries where Canadian groups have been able to effectively work with folks on the ground to bring these dogs over to loving homes in Canada. And so without that ability, I really fear that um, the consequences for these dogs is going to be deadly. Yeah, I guess it's more than 100 countries, right? Uh, now, now, obviously, the uh, CFIA has, has cites that it's been asked by the Public Health Agency of Canada and, and other provincial authorities to to try to make sure that rabies, dog rabies, doesn't spread. Uh, I gather there are no cases that we know of in the country right now. Does it demand this kind of reaction? Is it that much of a threat? Well, you know, I really, I applaud the CFIA in one sense for taking this on proactively and trying to keep rabies out. It's obviously a really important concern and we don't want dog rabies to spread here to dogs or humans. It would be very, very bad. But I do think that there's other steps that they could be taking to accomplish the same thing that falls short of a blanket ban on all dog rescue from most places in the world. 
So, um, you know, what, what's interesting to me about the situation is that the United States brought in a similar but temporary policy last summer. And after reviewing the situation, they lifted that policy in June. And instead of a blanket ban, what they're now saying via the CDC in the States is, is as long as there is a legitimate rabies vaccination certificate, there is an antibody test to make sure a dog has developed antibodies to the vaccine and a period of quarantine, then they're fine with dogs coming back into the country. So I would have just liked to see something done like that in Canada so that we don't have this blanket ban that condemns so many dogs to die. I was going to say, what what are the alternatives to this? And I guess it would have been, it would have been made sense to consult with those involved in these rescues to see what would be possible, what would be prohibitive, what would work, and what wouldn't. Yeah, I think that's right. And the rescue community, I've you know, I've spoken with so many just great groups of selfless volunteers who do this work on their own time because they care so much about rescuing dogs. They are so very willing to work with the CFIA and to provide advice. They're, you know, in the, the stage now, I think, where they're trying to do outreach both to the CFIA and to politicians. But um, I haven't spoken with a single person involved in dog rescue who doesn't support keeping rabies out of the country. It's just that they feel, based on evidence, that if you've got a vaccination certificate, and, and I should note, Ben, that vaccines, the World Health Organization says they're 100% effective against rabies. So if you've got a vaccination certificate, if you've done a blood test on the dog to make sure that they have antibodies, and I think in this post-COVID world, a lot of us know much more about antibodies at this point and their importance for preventing disease, but you can test dogs to see if they've developed those antibodies to the rabies virus. And then a period of quarantine should take care of any lingering concerns. So we are really urging the CFIA at this point to listen to dog rescues and work with them to make sure some of these measures can be implemented. I've also noticed that it, it's it's not only are there a lot of countries on that list, but but what dogs are prevented from being imported is also a broad definition as well. It covers a whole range of things, including adoptions, which which I think you took some objection to or took some uh, some objection with. Yeah, and that's a great point. That really is the crux of the issue here. So the CFIA says no commercial dogs can come into Canada after September 28th from these countries. And uh, we would actually support a ban on, you know, bringing dogs from puppy mills and dogs for resale into Canada from, you know, any place in the world. Um, but the CFIA includes under that definition of commercial, they include adoptions and rescue dogs as well, which to us doesn't really make much sense. Um, these aren't dogs who are being sold for pets, they're dogs who are being adopted into loving homes. So, you know, I think it would be a good thing for that ban on uh, truly commercial dog shipments to stay in place, but to exempt rescues. Um, you know, one thing that we actually fear with this policy is that it's going to lead to an increase in puppy mills domestically here in Canada, because if there's unmet demand for dogs and rescued dogs from other countries aren't coming into the country, that could lead people to turn to places like Kijiji and Craigslist and buy dogs from puppy mills, which would be a huge setback for dogs in this country. So Camille, just so that listeners understand, I mean, these are some of the things that we see stories about all the time, whether it be Afghanistan or Ukraine most recently, these countries would all be, as of the 28th, done. You couldn't bring a dog in from those countries. Yeah, more or less. There, there's some different rules if a dog is, um, you know, personally owned by somebody and is, the person has had that dog for quite some time. But um, all these organizations doing the selfless work of pulling these dogs off the street, of staying and neutering them, getting them veterinary care, um, they will all be out of luck come September 28th. Have you had any contact with CFIA? Have you had any any luck in trying to, to see if there's not some different path forward here? Because it seems, again, the 28th, as I mentioned, is World Rabies Day. So it seems like both an arbitrary date and yet a very set in stone kind of date. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. They announced the policy on June 28th, so a little over a month ago at this point, and it comes into effect September 28th. So that's a good three-month lag period. Um, you know, you kind of have to wonder if the, the problem is of such urgency right now, is, is it not important to implement those measures right now? Um, so, you know, we're continuing to reach out to the CFIA. A lot of rescue groups are doing the same thing, um, as well as reaching out to members of parliament who ultimately could have uh, a huge contribution in potentially reversing this and putting in a more evidence-based system in place. I'm speaking with Camille Labchuk. She's executive director of Animal Justice. We're talking about a CFIA, uh, a new rule banning, uh, in many ways, the uh, the adoption uh, and import of all dogs from uh, more than 100 countries, some countries you'll be familiar with, uh, places where we've seen uh, quite successful dog rescues of late, such as Ukraine, Afghanistan, other places. Uh, this would come into effect on September 28th. And not only is it, I mean, it's, it's even if you have a permit to bring a dog, import a dog from one of those countries, September 28th is indeed uh, the date where it would have to and when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about what can be done at this point uh, to try and uh, see if the CFIA won't uh, won't shift gears a bit on this. That's next. My guest this half hour is Camille Labchuk. She's a lawyer and executive director of Animal Justice. We're talking about the CFIA, uh, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, imposing a ban on the import of dogs from more than 100 countries around the world uh, to try and prevent dog rabies from entering this country. Uh, but it's also a, a quite a significant ban and will affect a lot of annual animal rescue groups in this country. It comes into effect on September 28th. And that, I mean, one of the things I noticed, that it's a bit of a race against time now. So even if you had a permit to bring a dog over that was issued in the last month or so. That's it on September 28th. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So all of these organizations who are doing this amazing volunteer work of bringing these dogs over. And, you know, let me tell you, Ben, like, I, I know personally organizations that, um, you know, they do international dog adoption, in part to help fund the amazing work that they do on the ground to get veterinary care and spays and neuters done for dogs. So if they can charge adoption fees to Canadians who have the resources and are willing to pay them and want to adopt a dog from these countries, they can then send that money back to countries like Colombia, you know, countries like Ukraine, countries where the need is very high and they don't have the same animal welfare infrastructure in place that we do. And those groups can make that money go very, very far in terms of doing spays and neuters, uh, veterinary care, and really helping these dogs get better lives. So for them, this, this is such a blow. So you're really talking about sort of throttling on an entire system that's come that's that's emerged that, that does this kind of work. Yeah, that's right. Throttling an entire system and a system that is is sprung up really out of the goodness of people's hearts. Um, this work doesn't tend to be supported by governments. In fact, most animal welfare initiatives in this country, unfortunately, tend to be done because people care, um, not because there's government funding for them. Government funding tends to go towards subsidizing slaughterhouses and you know businesses that profit from using animals. And most rescue work is done just by compassionate people who care about dogs or care about cats or, or other animals. So, you know, not only is, is the sector already at a huge disadvantage structurally and systemically because it's not really supported by taxpayer funding, um, but, you know, now the government's actually putting these rules in place that make it more difficult to do that work. And I think that's really unfortunate. I'm surprised we haven't seen more about this because we see all kinds of stories about dogs being rescued, arriving in this country, but we really haven't seen much about this ban, or at least not a ton, not that I've seen. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've been doing media interviews nonstop. <laughs> right, okay, <laughs> in that is, case, which is <laughs> good. just me. Yeah, and I think international dog rescue organizations are really starting to get mobilized and organized as well now. Um, you know, for them, it's it's a big challenge to have to step into to figure to figure out what to do. So as I mentioned, these people are volunteers. 
Uh, they're not professionals. They don't generally get paid for the work that they do. They organize this complex network of, um, you know, organizing flight volunteers to bring dogs over, organizing local spay and neuter work and vaccinations and veterinary care for these dogs. So they're volunteers and they're now having to step into this very different role, which is trying to actively lobby the government to change its tune on this and bring in rules that you know, would involve testing and quarantine and vaccinations that make more sense. So it's an enormous burden for these rescue organizations that are already subsisting just thanks to volunteer donations. So you are looking for some exemptions here, I gather, so at least at least some sort of leeway between uh, as of the 28th, so this ban doesn't come into effect and just stop everything. Because I imagine it'd be hard to start everything up again if it stopped. Yeah, that's another really great point. These are these are systems, right? And, and once you turn off the tap on the system, it can be really difficult to turn it back on again. Um, you know, so I worry. I worry about this. I, I also worry about you know, is the CFIA bringing this in with the intention of later alleviating it once they um, do some consultations and come up with a better policy that's more evidence based? If so, that would be good in one sense, but it would have been better to do those consultations before this ban comes into effect. So what we're really looking for at this point is, is some, some leeway and some compassion, hopefully, from the CFIA to at least keep rescues and adoptions going. Um, I think it would be a great thing if they actually did shut off commercial dog imports. So people bringing dogs in from puppy mills, often in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's something that has happened regularly in this country. And we've seen images and investigations before about the conditions those dogs arrive in, which is tends to not be good in many cases. So if they want to shut down that sector, I think that would be great. But we really need to see some exemptions for adoption and rescue so that those dogs aren't left out in the cold to die in the street. The clock is ticking, though. I mean, the 28th of September is, uh, is you know, a month and a half, of, well, near a little bit under two months away now. Yeah, the clock is ticking. And, you know, I think what's what's really important about this is that this decision really does mean life or death for so, so many dogs. Um, I've already spoken with some rescuers who are speaking with their international partners on the ground in, in countries that are affected by this ban. And many of the international partners are saying, look, Canada was our last hope to find these dogs a home. If Canada is shut off as a destination for adoption, then we'll have no choice but to start euthanizing. And I don't think that's a policy consequence that anybody wants to see. I'm sure the CFIA doesn't want that. So we really just hope that they'll come to the table and propose something uh, more reasonable for dog adoptions. So what for you now between now and the 28th of September? Well, what we're really encouraging people to do is contact uh, not just the CFIA, but also their members of parliament. So members of parliament ultimately are in charge uh, via the government of, of this agency's decisions. And I think it's uh, a decision that was made in good faith by the CFA to shut down these imports out of concern over rabies. And obviously no one wants to minimize the importance of addressing rabies or preventing it from coming into the country. But I think despite the decision being made in good faith, there's some unintended policy consequences here and legislators should be the ones to be aware of that. So we're asking people if they care about this issue to reach out to their members of parliament, um, reach out to senators, reach out to the government and the CFIA and make sure that those concerns are heard and that the government understands the consequences for dogs, which are going to be deadly. And you have a petition as well, I see. Yeah, we do. You can visit animaljustice.ca to sign the petition. We're, we're calling for a reversal of this policy and uh, effective measures in its place, which include quarantine upon arrival, and uh, antibody testing, and of course, vaccinations, which the World Health Organization says are 100% effective. Camille Labchuk, thanks so much for, uh, for providing up some update on this, uh, an update on this and some insight into it as well. Oh, thanks so much for covering this, Ben. <laughs>
to the war in Ukraine now. Do you ever notice every time there's some kind of bad news out there about Ukraine, Ottawa tends to roll out something like good news. So today it's expanding sanctions to include dozens of military officers whose troops whose troops stand accused of committing atrocities, mainly in Bucha, that, outs, that area outside of Kyiv, against Ukrainian civilians. Canada is also adding 17 companies and entities, Russian companies and entities, uh, to its sanctions list for supporting the invasion. Uh, Russian troops, of course, are accused of having raped, tortured, and killed hundreds of Ukrainian civilians in the city on the outskirts of Kyiv during the first months of their invasion. The International Criminal Court is also investigating. Now, those sanctions announcements come as a new report from the Global Mail says that just prior to shuttering the embassy in Kyiv back in mid-February, Global Affairs Canada in Ottawa was briefed on the real possibility that Russia would invade and that Ukrainians working for our embassy there would be targeted. Despite that, and pleas from embassy staff in Kyiv to help them out, Ottawa told staff in Kyiv to withhold that information and leave local hires behind, some 50 of them, unaware of the risks, at least from the, from the embassy, that they could face retaliation or at least be targeted by Russian soldiers if they were to overrun the capital. Well, joining me now with more on this is Rob Hubert. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure, Ben. So this is one of those stories that, I mean, I, we, we knew that 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 staff had been left behind because it emerged quite early on that they were sort of trying to find their way out and there were some, you know, embassy staff that were doing it of their own volition, trying to help their old colleagues out of the country. But this is kind of surprising that the embassy knew that they could be targeted by Russian invasionary forces and left them there to their own devices anyway and didn't even bother to tell them about it. Does it come as a surprise to you? Well, we have such a mixed record on terms of how we've acted. I mean, a general trend, and this is bipartisan, it's not just simply the Trudeau administration, but uh, we have a tendency not really to provide the type of protection that you would think. Um, you know, there, Canada heavily involves itself in a lot of actions, including those that entail military action, and we do tend, doesn't matter if you're talking about the Afghans, if you're talking about the Kurds, um, we're, we don't have exactly the best track record for this. I guess there isn't necessarily, I mean, we call it duty of care, but it doesn't extend, does it, to local hires, at least not under uh, the rules that have been in place for the last decade. Yeah, that's, that's, one of the, you know, that's one of the defenses that you'll hear the government make. And I suppose from a legal perspective, you might say, yeah, there's an element. But, I mean, let's be honest. From a, from a human perspective or human security, whatever you want to say, there's a certain responsibility of people that are, are, are you know, have put their lives on, on the line, be them in Afghanistan or in Ukraine. And we have a moral responsibility as far as I'm concerned for those people. I mean, I, th I think, Rob, what we're seeing, clearly uh, the Global Mail spoke to diplomats who feel exactly the same way. These are clearly people who knew what happened and decided they had to speak out about it. Well, exactly. I mean, especially, remember, this is a, this is a foreign service that couldn't, couldn't hide its happiness when the Trudeau administration came back, you know, in terms of cheering. So the idea that you would have professional diplomats, you know, be, being willing to, to break their silence on this for such a, for such a, um, a telling criticism, I think it, it just shows how much they are concerned. There were some examples. I think one of the one of the things the report pointed out is that the Americans did do some work to try to clear some of their people out. I mean, they understood. They all understood this was a Five Eyes briefing, uh, 
they all understood that their embassy staff could be targeted. They they had learned this that their embassy staff could be targeted should a Russian soldiers uh, you know take over. Uh, other countries sort of tried to make sure they got some of them out at least, but it looks like we just left ours behind. There was one comment in in the article about how you know employees had to watch as Canadian staff worried about how to get their pets out of Kiev while they were being left behind. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, and then you combine that with that uh, that stupid photo op that uh, Trudeau and his senior administrators had to uh, do when they uh, showed up in in Ukraine. Remember, they couldn't get to the embassy fast enough to take those pictures, and they had to have the photographer come along. And then we hear this story, and it, you know, you, you just sit there and shake your head and think this is a government that just has its priorities so so wrong. Or in many ways, doesn't it doesn't seem to know that they're going to get caught out a bit, or doesn't even know. I mean, sometimes you look and think they they don't even know what's going on at the embassy in in, in Kiev. I'm realizing it's still essentially shuttered now. We interviewed the the new ambassador a while back. Uh, I guess they're trying to do some some work there, but yeah, the the, the idea that you would leave them behind. Is, is there any way to change this? I mean, this is not going to be the last time we find ourselves in a difficult situation. I gather this was this current regime or this current. Um, policy was brought in when we were shuttering the embassy in Iran, and we didn't have to want to worry about getting people out of that country. Yeah, no. I mean, well, let's put it this way. So, so we didn't do it in Iran. We didn't do it in Afghanistan. We didn't do it with the Kurds. Um, did any of these governments ever suffer from that action? I mean, the brutal fact is that Canadians do not vote on these type of issues. Um, are you going to see people turn around saying they've had enough of, uh, of the three examples that we've just talked about with the Trudeau administration and that will determine my vote? Uh, or will there be other factors that determine the vote? And as a result, um, these governments have become hyper you know, sensitive to what hurts them at the polls. But if it doesn't hurt them, then I think they feel they have free reign it must hurt us somewhere, though, because within those milieus, like if you go to any major capital like a Kiev, you know, people who work locally for the embassies, they, they talk to each other. They know each other to some extent. If Canada gets a bad reputation for not treating its its employees properly, its local hires properly, we've certainly seen accusations that of that with Afghanistan, some of it entirely fair, some of it, you know, obviously due to logistics. Um, but Canada Canada's international reputation would no doubt have to suffer if we're seen as being the country that leaves its local hires in the lurch when something goes wrong. Well, the problem, though, with the reputation argument, Ben, is, of course, we pride ourselves on what we think people think about us. You know, we're always having this this uh, this mythology. Oh, yes, everybody wants to be like us. And the reality is, is most people don't really think about us, period. The other problem, too, is in each of these zones where we've abandoned these people, be it Ukraine, Afghanistan, wherever, these are war zones. Yeah, people may turn around and say, yeah, the Canadians are, are kind of slimy. They, 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 they will abandon you, but I need a job. Where can I get a job? And that's going to be the driving feature. And that's what, you know, once again, this is why the government gets away with it, because they can turn around and say, hey, look at all these people that want to work for us. See, we can't be that bad if they're coming in. And they're not coming to work for us because they're going, oh, my God, I want to go work with the Canadians. That's so, that's so cool. They're thinking, i got to feed my family in this bloody war zone. And I got to take whatever I can get. And I think that's the reason why you see people, you know, you won't see people turning around saying, well, I won't go work for those, those, those darn Canadians. They may be thinking that, but that's not, that's not going to stop them if the job is offered.
No, you're uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, having having been in some of those areas, you're absolutely right. Uh, one of the things I was struck by today is that you know, an article you wrote back a while wrote a while back. You talked about sort of the, the Canada's back, Canada has your back. Um, you know, theme that we often see rolled out, and this once again sort of lays lays doubt to that claim, doesn't it? Oh, just totally. I mean, it's just. You know, in your introductory comments, you also talked about the new sanctions being brought forward and the way that Canada is always trying to put spins on, oh, yes, we're going to go isolate these people. Of course, when we had the opportunity to really hurt the Russians, um, you know, we said, oh, we have to make an exception to that because the Germans asked us nicely. Uh, it's just sort of like, okay, so you're going to go with these, the, 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 these, the, these targeted sanctions that we know don't have an impact because if they did, it would have worked in 2014 because, I mean, remember, the war starts in 2014 and we try to do that. You know, targeted sanctions will we'll fix Putin's wife and daughter and, and that's really going to hurt them. And, and how much did that stop Putin from launching the second phase of the war in 2022? And, of course, it's nothing. Now, the sanctions, if we, if we would have held on to the, 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 the turbines, uh, tur- turbines that we were holding, um, that starts hurting their, their real economic capability. And, and why we're not sitting there saying to the Germans, look, we'll pick up the slack. We've got oil and gas. Uh, you know, that's, that, that, that's who we are. And, in ca- and instead of saying, well... We got a chance to actually hurt them, but we're not willing to, to, to do the mental gymnastics that would require to try to actually sell oil and gas to uh, the Germans. I mean, it's just, I mean, the hypocrisy there just baffles one's mind. I saw the Germans were out thanking us again today, and the, the one one commentator put it, of course, well, saying that uh, Canada didn't want to let down an ally who was letting down an ally, right? So, yeah, 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 I mean, it's always just... Good. Yeah, you're so right, Ben. I mean, it's just, and I mean, you sit there and everybody knows that it was a dumb idea all along to go for Nord Stream and tie yourself into that. And everybody saw the treatment that occurred when the war started in 2014. And the the idea that that becomes important to keep our alliance when, in fact, remember when, when Trudeau made that big show of support when, when uh, Zelensky came and talked at the, at the parliament? And, oh, yes, we're with you. We've got your back. Yeah, until the Germans want us to do something different. I mean, come on. I mean, that was just... Ugh. It segues nicely into our next topic, something you were talking about on the weekend, uh, Rob, which is uh, Russia's new naval doctrine, which makes some pretty interesting uh, remarks or pretty interesting uh, claims about the Arctic, something Canada, I imagine, should be worried about. Uh, We'll talk about that after this. Rob Hewitt is with us from Calgary. He's a professor, assistant professor of political science at the University of Calgary and a fellow at the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies. We've been talking about uh, Canada uh, essentially abandoning its local staff at uh, the embassy in Kiev right before Russia's invasion. And we'll move now to Russia because over the weekend on Sunday it was Navy Day in Russia, always a big one. And Vladimir Putin uh, introduced or signed a new Navy doctrine, a new blueprint. It sets out the Arctic Ocean which, of course, many have been repeatedly warning that Russia is trying to militarize, at least, uh, as an area of particular importance for the country. That has to have significance for this country, although I haven't seen anyone talk about it since Sunday, Rob, uh, other than you, (laughs) or I haven't seen many people talk about it. Uh, Canada must be worried about its security. I mean, clearly, it's nice that Russia telegraphs what it's up to. At the same time, how should we be reacting to it? 
Well, we should be horrified because we have to take what they just said in this. Um, and, and, and just to be clear, this isn't a new policy. This is a policy that's been developing from 207, 208. We've just chosen to totally um, ignore it, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's a public statement, uh, and it, that re- represents something new. But why we should be terrified is the manner by which the Putin makes it very clear that they are seeing the Arctic as, you know, in political science, we call it the Russia's uh, an Arctic hegemon. It means it's got local uh, military advantages in both its maritime and aerospace capabilities in the region. And they have made a dedicated effort, and like I said, we can trace it back to about 207, uh, when they we see the real efforts to do this. And then we have, of course, Putin reiterating. He reiterates it because he had said it before, but we took notice finally now that he will be will, willing to use nuclear force against the NATO alliance if they, in fact, take actions that he deems threatening. And now that threatening language is now put into the context of the Navy bill or Navy policy and here's the kicker. Here's the part that you've got to be really concerned about. In Canada, we often come up with policies and we never bother paying anything. I mean, you know, Strong, Secure, Engage made all these great promises about a new Navy getting the um, replacement for the F-18s. Of course, how's that going? The Russians, on the other hand, have been making major efforts of rebuilding their Navy, particularly in the context of their undersea capabilities. Now, I say undersea because it's not just submarines. It's also autonomous underwater vehicles. It is a new set of torpedoes that are said to basically be able to go around two to 300 uh, miles an hour underwater, which, if it's true, is amazing. They've also developed a whole host of new what is called tactical nuclear weapon delivery systems. Uh, these are the hypersonics that people are so concerned with. So for the Russians, it's, it's build the Navy, get the capability, and then we'll talk, as opposed to the Canadian government who likes to talk and never gets around to doing it. And so we've set up the straight, a straw man in Canada. You'll hear it from General Ayers. You'll hear it from the Minister of Defense and Foreign Affairs. They'll say, well, the Russians aren't going to invade Baffin Island. And then the logical conclusion for them is, therefore, we don't have to worry about the Russians, which is total nonsense. We have to worry very much because the threat's not about a bunch of Russians landing on on Ellesmere Island. The threat is from their submarines. It's from their, their aerospace and air capabilities. Their 15 to 22 new bases that they have built in the Arctic region since 2007. The new hypersonics, the new underta- underwater autonomous vehicles. This is where the threat is. And we're just pretending it doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, the threat is who controls access, right? Who controls the region? And, and not not in terms of putting troops on, as you mentioned, on Baffin Island, you wouldn't want to do that. But who really controls, who rules the roost up there? And, and in many ways, uh, it sounds like Russia continues to make noise about it being them. And if anyone gets in their way, there's going to be a price to pay. I mean, what to make of that, given what's happened in Ukraine is another issue. But still, it's to be taken seriously. Well, it's actually the central center issue, uh, then, because what's happened is that the Russians have been successful since they began this reassertion since, well, it's 1999, when they put down the Chetnian Revolution. Then they do it in Georgia. Then they do it in Syria as a testbed. Then they do it in Ukraine in 2014 and now in 2022. This is a series of behavior. 
Now, the reason why, once again, the Ukraine is central to all this capability is that it's a basic element of showing to the West, we are going to take what we want. And if you try to meet us with military force, we have a greater capability to fight than you. And that is focused on the maritime and the militarization of the Arctic that they're doing. So in other words, this isn't just simply, you know, strutting their, their stuff to, to, to show that they're the, 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 the biggest uh, boys in the room. It's basically getting ready to fight that war when, in fact, the West take steps to finally say, you know, be it in, in the Balkans or Moldavia or wherever it's going to happen next, okay, enough is enough, we're going, we're going to stop you. Well, then you see the Russians with the capability of, a, of what people fear the most, which is a lightning strike, which then incapacitates us, blinds us, and then the Russians are there, okay, so what are you going to do now? And so are we going to escalate nuclear weapons at that point? And you see the logic here. So it's, that's why the, what they've said on the Navy side, what they've done in the Ukraine is so important and why it's so outrageous that we in Canada just say, well, Baffin Island's not going to be invaded, so let's not worry. Perhaps we'll get that icebreaker one day, Rob. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time again tonight. It's always my pleasure, Ben. I look forward to the next time. 